Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, I'm joined by Matt Feldick, the Marketing Director for Aeroviper Running. We talk about the impact of the Cocodona 250, the progress made around live streaming events in our sport, and pitching trail running to different audiences. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Aeroviper Running. Use code SINGLETRACK10 at checkout on Ultra Sign Up for 10% off registration specifically to their Flagstaff Sky Peaks race series, which takes place on October 7th. Details are linked in the show notes of this episode. This episode is also brought to you by Rabbit, makers of the best trail running apparel. Use code SINGLETRACK20 at checkout on their website for 20% off your next order of their kit. With that, let's get started. Matt Feldick, welcome to the Single Track Podcast. It's a long time coming. Hey, it's it's about time I'm on here, man. I've been counting down the days. <laughs> well, there's a lot I want to talk about. I have it on my list to talk about Cocodona, live streaming, Aravipa, marketing the sport of trail running, because you have something to say in all of those categories and more. I think I want to start with Cocodona because it's so fresh. In my opinion, we just had one of the most fun weekends in the American trail running scene that I think is going to catch on for a lot more people that aren't already aware. But uh, before we get into it, could you can you talk about the genesis of the Cocodona 250 and like Jamil's vision for it and your vision for it and what makes it so special? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a race that Jamil has had on his mind for for a while. I mean, before my time at Aravipa, and you know the whole the whole idea behind the the Cocodona event kind of as it is right now is you know finding a way to connect all of these kind of iconic little mountain uh, southwest trail towns um, throughout central and northern Arizona. So you know you're starting in Black Canyon City which is maybe iconic in the ultra running space because of the, the uh, Black Canyon Ultras. But you're on the Black Canyon Trail, which used to be used to, you know, move cattle uh, from, you know, certain fields to other fields, depending on the time of year. And you're connecting the town of Crown King to, you know, Prescott and Whiskey Row to Jerome and Sedona and just all of these really incredible little towns that, you know, maybe deserve a little bit more shine than they get. And then culminating in, in Flagstaff, which, you know, in my opinion is one of the most, uh, world renowned, uh, high altitude endurance towns, uh, in the world, you know? So, yeah, I think the whole Genesis is, you know, finding a way to connect those towns with the ultimate goal of kind of establishing, you know, its own kind of trail like, like recognized trail. I told Brett when we were there last week, cause it was my first time visiting flag that it felt like the Hollywood of running. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would agree. I think that even living here for, you know, a year and a half, two years now, like it doesn't, it, it doesn't get old either. Like it's not something that just happens during big training camps or it's like year round you're seeing, you know, um, national teams from across the world here to train in a variety of endurance sports, whether it be running, cycling, uh, skiing. Um, you know, you've got U.S. sponsored teams that are either based here or do camps here. So you're always seeing like the who's who of running in general, let alone 
trail running, like I was at the Cocodona finish line for like five minutes and walking back to my car, I see Rob Crar on the corner, like cheering runners on, you know, it just, it, it never gets old. This year you added a couple races to this. I, maybe we call it a festival as an operative word, the Elden Crest 36 miler and the Sedona Canyons 125. Can you talk a bit about what the long-term vision for this race series might look like and how it fits into the American ultra trail running scene? Yeah. I mean, the goal is to like the Cocodona experience is, is one of a kind in a variety of different ways. Right. And so, you know, we want to create this kind of week long festival that opens the door, opens opportunities up to, to a lot of different people, right? Like Elden Crest 36 is, is the gateway to the Cocodona 250 for a lot of people. And maybe it happens over a number of years, but you know, we want to, we want to allow as many people as we can to have, you know, this kind of unique experience. And I imagine that, you know, we'll continue to look at ways to grow that festival type atmosphere. Um, But like that kind of is the, is the vision is to create this week long festival because it's something that I don't want to say is wholly lacking in the North American market, but it's not as prominent in the U S as it is in Europe. Yeah. I was going to say like, we've seen it, we've seen broken arrow do it over a three day stretch with a lot of success. Um, you include Western States into that mix and it is sort of like California's week long festival. It is a staple on the European scene with UTMB. I know there's a lot of mixed opinions about taking a model from another part of the world and importing it into the American landscape. But do you feel like the festival model is something that could work independent of a region in the world? Like America want America could want a festival type race setting without too much criticism of it. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that, I think that some of it is just like how you, how you create that experience, right? Like, I think that you still want the experience to be premier and inclusive and, um, and all of those things and community focused and a lot of those things. And I think you can do that. And I think there's an appetite for that uh, in America. I think that, that if not, we wouldn't have had people signing up for probably these new race distances. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll be honest with you. Like when, when you had mentioned doing the Cocodona 250 live stream, this was probably like a month before the event. And like I talked with Brett about it, we genuinely thought that come race week, we would be speaking into the ether and there would be like five or 10 people watching the live stream. Cause it's like 200 milers is such a new thing. Cocodona, like it has name recognition cause it's Air Viper, but I just didn't know what to expect. And come race day or come Monday, we, you know, we look at YouTube live and there's like at least 2000 people watching. It seems like the numbers are at either the same level as Bandera and black Canyon and Canyons, or even like double or triple the number. So I, I guess I have a lot of questions off this, but what's your thesis on, why there is so much fan interest in the, like this 200 mile race. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting, right? I don't know that I have like the right answer necessarily, but I think that, I think that some of the potential reasons are like it's during a work week versus on a weekend. Right. So people, 
maybe have more capacity to tune in. But I also think in certain ways, the race is almost more relatable to people, which sounds crazy because like the 200 plus mile distance is obviously not relatable to most people. But I think the characters and the athletes participating are much more relatable than you get at a at a Black Canyon, at a Western, at a Bandera, right? Where the stream is focused primarily, the story is primarily the elites. Here you're talking about, you know, people who work full-time jobs, who are mothers and fathers and are squeezing in training for this ultra-distance event uh, while balancing a lot of other things, right? And to, I think to a lot of people that's very relatable and very inspiring while they might not themselves be thinking like, oh, I could go run 250 miles across this gnarly terrain in Arizona, they may connect themselves more with, you know, the athletes and the the runners within the, within the story. How about, and I'm just like brainstorming other factors, how, how much of it is chalked up to Aravipa already having a pre-existing ready set audience to tap into versus interest in the race itself or interest in the distance? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some of that. For sure. Uh, like, you know, when Aravipa puts on an event or a live stream, there's like an expectation, right? In terms of like you, I think that the audience at this point expects it to be like a fairly high level production, right? But I, I mean, I don't think we see the numbers we saw at this live stream for this event just because Aravipa has, has an audience, right? Because I think that when you when you look at it through different mediums, right, like social, for instance, I think our percentage of like social reach was like heavily skewed towards like non-followers and people outside the Aravipa community versus those who are following our accounts and within our community. So I think that, yeah, I think obviously us having a, a sizable platform and having done a number of of streams really helps. But... I also think that, you know, each year there's new runners, so there's new family and friends who want to turn tune in. And I think that the story, like the story and the race are just growing to becoming this like this unicorn or this white whale, right? Where people just want to see it. I love what you said earlier, hypothesizing about the timing of the race, that it happens almost entirely between Monday and Friday. And most other races in our sport happen on the weekends and people are preoccupied in some ways. I would be really, and I don't know if you may already have this data. I would be really curious to know, to dive deeper into the consumption habits of these viewers. Like, did they have the live stream on in the background in the same way they might have like the, their Slack application or their discord application open. And, you know, periodically they would go and like, look at the live chat or, or take a look at the screen or were they like glued to it? And I don't know how you would measure that difference, but I'd be very curious to know like the, the the patterns there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that we have the data or the ability to like get the data really, but like just anecdotally looking at the live chat, I know that there were a ton of people in the live chat who were like, I'm not getting any work done or this is ta-. like, I know that you saw it all the time too, right? Like, so I think that there is something to that without having you know, like the tangible evidence to back that up. We've, and I think this is one of the only races in our sport that's done this, but if you look at other sports like baseball, basketball, soccer, et cetera, they have a lot of their premier 
programming and events midweek. And our sport, for many reasons, is a weekend type sport, both from a spectator standpoint and from a participant standpoint. I think this is very interesting from a marketing standpoint, from an advertising standpoint. What could be done with our sport when you create a product that's available midweek? Yeah, I mean, look at Monday Night Football, right? Like, that's kind of the staple of NFL coverage, and it happens prime time on a weekday. Um, and so I think that there's definitely something to be said that for that, like our sport is unique in the sense that like, maybe it's harder to get participation, uh, for like midweek races and stuff like that. But it's something that's definitely like interesting to think about. What were some of the, cause I, I'm not, I wasn't familiar with what the product looked like in the first two years of the race. What were some of the insights from the first two years from a media standpoint, from a marketing standpoint that you were looking to improve upon for this year's uh, presentation? How, yeah. What were those improvements? Yeah. I mean, I think year one to year two, our focus was just like, like year one, we didn't really know what we were doing, I guess. Like we didn't know if we could even make the stream happen. Like this came a couple months after black Canyon, which was like, first of its kind in terms of that type of stream in North America. So like year one, it was skeleton staff. It was, um, you know, volunteers as best as we could get them. Jamil was running the race. Um, And so we didn't commit ourselves too much to like how long we wanted to broadcast. So we did a lot less in terms of overall live schedule or live programming. In year two, now that we knew we could kind of do it and the fact that Jamil wasn't racing, so he was more involved, we were able to, you know, broadcast close to 100 hours. We had more commentators in. We, uh, I think we elevated, you know, some of the graphics packages and, and things like that that we did. And then this year, you know, our big focus was just like, incremental improvements, right? We had Starlink satellites, so we were able to get better video feeds. We had, you know, more commentators to hold down major parts of the broadcast with, you know, Chris Warden coming in and helping out a ton and you and Brett holding down a a big chunk of the broadcast. And so we were able to, you know, kind of spread the workload a little bit. Like last year, 2022, I was commentating and producing basically the whole time. Whereas this year I did a lot less commentating and a lot more producing, um, which I think just helps. I think it just helps tell the story better when someone can just focus on like changing camera angles, talking with race command, like making sure audio handling any sort of audio issues, like those kinds of things we were able to like, get some additional graphic overlays built in that I think helped, but I think we ended up going a little bit longer this year, but not, not really by design. I think we got like 102 and a half hours this year of 122 and a half hour race. Amazing. (coughs) What were, I know we're only, you know, three or four days removed from the finish, but what are some of the early lessons from this year's production that you're uh, taking into next year? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's just, you know, where can we make small, small changes, right? I think it's 
ensuring we have uh, more commentators and producers to kind of spread bandwidth out. I think it's, um, you know, trying to find ways to bring on more volunteers or uh, things like that so that we can get more coverage across the course. I think that those were probably some of like the bigger takeaways. I think there's always like ideas for things we could do next year, but I don't know that those are necessarily like learnings from this year per se. What's your favorite or most exciting idea for next year right now that you're toying with? Well, I think the, I don't know. I don't know if excited is the right word for it, but like the craziest (laughs) is trying to figure out how to stream all of the different events individually. Okay. So like, so you like would a have standalone Sedona product. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd have like a standalone product that would have its own production and its own commentary. That seems that's like, yeah, it seems pretty crazy as of right now, but I'm sure there are ways we can kind of work towards that, whether we're able to get it done next year or whether it's, you know, a, a few years down the road, but at some point it's kind of has to happen. When you think, I, I know that, when you look at most live streams, especially in the United States right now, the most frequently talked about bottleneck is a lack of cell phone coverage on the on the course for good video, good audio, all of that kind of stuff. But what are some other critical bottlenecks that AirViPa in particular deals with? Like you talked about getting coverage across as much of the course as possible. I know that when we were in the live chat, for example, throughout the week, people would say, you know, what's happening at this part of the course? Why are you focusing here? Is, for example, like people power, like having enough drone operators or, or people with gimbals really like close up there with um, cell phone reception? For something like Cocodona, I would I would almost argue that it's a bigger problem or not problem, but like a bigger uh, bottleneck or yeah, a bigger kind of tipping point for us. Um, it, obviously, we haven't solved the connectivity issue at, at all, but you know, we have enough Starlinks, we go through enough towns with connectivity that we're able to like cover a lot of the course, but it just comes down to like kind of people power in a lot of, ter- in a lot of ways, you know? I think that especially towards the middle to end of this year's race, like, we would have loved to have had more video feeds across the course. And there were a lot of places we had cell coverage that we could have, you know, brought video in from, but we just didn't have anyone there, you know, with a camera to film, which is why we relied at times upon like static camera setups, because then, you know, it's hardwired into good, good um, wireless connect or good kind of Wi-Fi connection and you're able to just like rely on it at various aid stations. But because it's during a work week, it's just a lot harder to get volunteers for Cocodona at times. Yeah. I was just going to say like, when you think about personnel, is it more a budget issue or is it a matter of like, there aren't enough people out there in our community or in the market to recruit from, to fully staff this thing? Um, I don't know that it's either, to be honest. I think it's just, almost getting the word out more and further in advance, right? Like I think the community is plenty big enough. I think that you just have to, you know, have to maybe give better incentive for the community to come out and and be a part of it. I think you maybe need to give them more time 
you know, historically our volunteer slots have only been open a few months prior to the race. And that's something that, you know, will be different for next year because we do have our, our volunteer slots and everything like that already open. So people can maybe plan, plan work, plan trips around it to come be a part of the experience. I think, again, I think the community is plenty big enough. I think the budget is plenty big enough now. I don't know that we knew that it would be that going into this year's race, but I think it's just, yeah, I think it's just more on like us to kind of get the word out as to what our needs are and how awesome the experience of being a part of it can be. Another thank you to sponsor HVMN. HVMN is my choice for exogenous ketones. If you are curious about using exogenous ketones in your training, racing, and day-to-day life, head over to hvmn.com. Get a bottle of Ketone IQ, and if you want a 20% discount in the process, use code SINGLETRACK20 at checkout for 20% off your next order. I want to, uh, before we get deeper into a live stream discussion, I want to set the scene for viewers and listeners about the setup in Flagstaff because, yeah, I mean, Brett and I, we've been a part of, and Leah, we've been a part of a few of these live stream operations today, but they were all based out of the Air Viper HQ down in Phoenix. This one was at an Airbnb in Flag, and I thought it was so cool. And I think that what you guys did was special. So uh, if you can describe the setup and just talk about like what was cool about it and just like what the, our day-to-day cadence was like. Yeah, I mean, we were literally set up in the living room of an Airbnb, uh, like a half mile or so from the finish line. We wish we were closer uh, to the finish, but yeah, I mean, we've done remote broadcasts before. We did um, uh, Kendall Mountain Run in Silverton in 2021. We did, let's see, Jackpot Ultras this year was a remote broadcast as well, hosted from uh, Henderson, Nevada. But this is one where it's risky to host like a five and a half to a hundred, a hundred and two and a half hour live stream from a location that you don't know that you've never seen. Um, and so thankfully we were able to like get internet speeds before we booked the Airbnb. But yeah, I mean, we just kind of moved some stuff around in this living room, put up a table and a backdrop and worked with arguably the tightest space we've ever, <laughs> we've ever worked with before to, uh, to make it happen. I mean, this, this living room space that we used was maybe a third of the size of our, of our Aravipa studio. Um, granted, we don't actively use all that space for the live stream, but it did make things, made things really tight. Um, yeah, I think we all got to know each other really well uh, because of how close we we all were uh, during the stream. So I thought it was cool too that, you know, we kicked off the live stream on a Sunday night or Monday morning. And as the live stream you know progressed and as the race progressed you saw the house gradually fill up fill up fill up and become yeah just more and more people moving in and out and even like athletes and crew coming in for interviews can you talk about that a bit yeah i mean i think that was one of the most special things about this year's race was you know when we're down in phoenix it's like it's like a ghost town down there at HQ, you know, it'll be the people working the live stream might be the only people uh, in the office for, for days. And so 
we've wanted to try and move this, the broadcast up to Flagstaff for a while for a number of reasons. Um, me being in Flagstaff, I think, was maybe the <laughs> the tipping point for for it uh, moving up here. Last year, I stayed down in Phoenix all week uh, away from my wife and kids, and uh, that was hard. So, you know, Jamil made it happen to get the broadcast up here. But I think that aside from my like personal benefits to it, like like you said, the fact that Kevin Goldberg was able after he finished to come and he walked, he walked to the studio. So shout out to Kevin Goldberg, walked to the studio up that big hill uh, to come onto the broadcast for a few hours. And we had, you know, Sarah Ostazewski came on in person yep. and, I think Jeff that it Browning. just opened, yeah, Jeff Browning, like a number of people. And it just opens up the opportunities to get people on so much more. And I think that that helps really share the story of, of the Cocodona event. Like it's easy for me to sit here and say like, oh, this event's awesome. Like I work for the company, right? Like I should say that, but it's, it's another thing to hear, hear it from the people who just experienced it, right? Like Eric Sensman was able to be a part of the broadcast and, you know, while he says he will probably never run the race again, he understands like how important this community is and how important the Cocodona event is. And so, yeah, it just made it, yeah, it made it a much better broadcast and a much better product because we were able to pull in all these different voices. Yeah. One thing that I was struck by was how accessible the live stream was to the rest of the community. Like, I think in a lot of sports commentary, sports broadcasting scenarios, it's a very asynchronous relationship between the the people in media and the fans. Like it's just the media speaking to the fans and there's no, you know, back and forth communication. In our case, it, it felt incredibly authentic because you had the live chat. And I would argue that at least when Brett and I were on, 30 to 40% of the content generated came from uh, posts and questions and back and forth in that live chat. And then of course, just people feeling like they could just come through the studio to either watch what we were doing or talk or, or join the broadcast. And I think that could be a key differentiator for our sport when it comes to creating fans in the future is that accessibility with everybody involved in the production. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's one of the most important things to me uh, when we put on a production is like, we don't want to, to do things the same way UTMB does them. And that's not because UTMB doesn't do a great job. They are the cream of the crop in terms of live broadcasting. But I think that there's just a new trend in terms of how people consume media. When you look at Monday night football with the Manning cast, when you look at uh, college football with Pat McAfee and the boys doing like kind of a simulcast thing. Like, I think there's just an appetite for these more kind of like laid back broadcasts. And you obviously, you still want them to be professional and premium and premier, but you want the audience to feel like they're sitting, you know, in your living room with you watching things unfold as opposed to feeling like you are, you know, Tony Romo predicting plays uh, during a Sunday afternoon football game, you know? And so I think that that's one of the things that's always been important to us is like elevating as many voices as we can in the sport and doing it kind of our way. Yeah. Um, because that's just a way that we, that we believe in. We had a lot of laughs over the week. Um, 
many laughs, some, some at my expense. Um, but it, it was great. What, what were some of your favorites over the course of the week? Like, first of all, we should talk about Flota. We have to give a shout out. To I mean, Flota. we're extending the marketing of Flota. Talk about Flota for a second. That is, that is probably the thing that stands out to me the most in terms of like funny, uh, funny things that came to life was just Flota. Uh, that commercial is live on youtube as well so anyone who's listening and has a link to it you know checked it out make sure you check that out because it is maybe the funniest piece of content that's ever been produced in the ultra running community it's just so good and it's just what is flat soda it's flat so satisfied running partnered with um outside and and a few other people to to produce flat soda and it's it's amazing. It tastes actually pretty decent. Um, it doesn't taste like you would expect it to taste, but it tastes pretty decent. But the commercial and the can are absolutely what makes it. How about the blimp? Can you provide a little context on the blimp? I know that this comes at the expense of Air, Vi- Air Viper running, but Jamil seems to be taking it seriously now, according to according to sources. Conversation, according to sources. So talk about the blimp. Yeah, so I think it was. I think it stemmed from a live chat comment. I imagine about maybe why we don't have more drone coverage or where our drones were or how we used it. It stemmed. It stemmed from something along the lines of of drone utilization, and I don't remember if it was you or Brett it's who Brett. decided. I, I thought it was Brett who decided to crowdsource funding for a blimp, the Air Avipa blimp. AKA blimp biscuit, according to Brett, not realizing how much, <laughs> how much they cost. And so throughout the course of the week, Brett is basically a beggar on the live stream, you know, trying to, trying to just get funding for the air vibe of blimp, you know, doing the people's work. And we raised like, I think over a thousand dollars. No blimp. way. <laughs> There's no way. How much did we raise? Maybe like five hundred dollars. Okay, that's still a lot. That is, it's more than I would have expected uh, our incredible community to have given you guys for a blimp that they knew they weren't going to get. The, these are some of the outcomes of having a bi-directional audience with uh, with the live stream bi-directional relationship. You start raising money for things like blimps. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I want to come back to to the live stream conversation. And there was a tweet you made, I think yesterday, the day before you say there's nothing more difficult and more rewarding to execute than the Cocodona 250 live stream period. So break that down for listeners. Like what make, first of all, what makes it rewarding and then what makes it so complicated? Yeah. I mean, I think obviously I think that I don't know all of the hard things out there, but I would imagine like finishing the race uh, is probably also something really hard to execute as a runner. So I would throw that out there as well, but from like a media standpoint, the most rewarding part of the Cocodona live stream is getting to like witness firsthand and share with the viewing audience the the emotion that these runners experience when they cross the finish line. And it's it's to varying degrees or to varying like ways of putting it out there, but everyone experiences that. You see Mike McKnight cross the finish line and he is just like dumbfounded at what happened like he just has this like look of shock on his face you've got sally mccray finishing and 
like maybe waking up the entire town of Flagstaff with her energy. And you've got, you know, our final finishers who will like bring you to tears and you have all these just amazing stories within, but to see every person cross the finish line and just be overcome with, with emotion, like puts into perspective as much as you can, as it can, like what they experienced out there. And so that to me is like why it's so rewarding. You've got people who finish uh, and say like, this race changed my life. Like that's pretty, that's pretty crazy uh, to hear. And it's incredibly impactful, like more so than we get through any other piece of content we we've produced. And in terms of, Go ahead. Yeah, the the complexity. Yeah, talk about the complexity. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest reason it's complex is you're covering 250 miles of trail um, versus like something like the Havelina 100 where you only have to cover 20 miles of trail, right? Or Black Canyon, you're covering 60 miles of trail. And so that inherently puts put makes it a lot harder. You're also in some of the most remote parts of kind of central and northern Arizona to where like getting even getting out to these places can be can be pretty challenging um and then i think most important well not maybe not most importantly importantly but also it's like it's it's, a, it's five and a half days so it's just yeah. it's so much work you know it's so much work on the prep side which is like months leading up to it just for the live stream then you've got the prep that the operations team does for the event itself and then you're I mean, you're basically working for five and a half straight days on very little sleep. Um, and it's all worth it because of like the joy you get to see from all of these runners and the joy you get to see from all of these family and friends tuned into the live stream, right? Like it's hard. It's hard to do it. It's hard to, like we touched on, you know, logistical challenges like you just have to find ways to do it, right? Like it would be very easy for us to say like, okay, we're going to broadcast five hours a day for five days. And like, that's good enough, right? Because you have big gaps in cell coverage. Like it's just hard. Um, but, you know, we continue to try and like find a way to to tell as many stories as we can and to produce the best product that we can. I think a lot of people in the sport right now, myself included, are excited that we're in this era where it's getting easier and easier to follow the sport, easier to be a fan from your bedroom or living room or office. You can click a link on the web and there you are watching the race. So obviously like you're meeting that need in the community, but I'd love for you to talk about the decision for Aravipa to invest in this type of technology, invest in this type of media, like why, why is it such a focus point for Airvipa? Like, do you think about it in terms of short-term benefits, long-term benefits? Like just talk about what, what, what went into the discussion that like solidified, okay, we're not just going to be an events company. We're also going to be a media company. And this is going to be one of the focal points for media for us. I think it dates back to Jamil's like days, you know, creating regular vlogs on run steep, get high, right? Like, he created those and saw how much a ben they benefited Aravipa just producing these pieces of media content and um, creating an avenue to talk about races in maybe a different way, right? I think that 
as technology has has advanced, like Jamil has always been like right there with it in terms of like his knowledge of what's to come and what there is out there. And he's been doing, he's been live streaming for a long time. You know, he was doing our desert solstice live stream off of like a webcam and a, and a computer, you know? And so it's not the same, obviously, (laughs) but I think that, you know, it goes back to his passion for media and technology. And then you partner that with like a major white space in the sport, right? Like a lot of sports have really elevated media coverage, even in niche sports, you look at surfing or skateboarding, right? Like, um, you know, they have elevated media content and coverage. And so Jamil wanted to, to bring it to our kind of to our sport in hopes of, you know, inspiring people to kind of get outside and push their, push their boundaries. Right. Like, we had, you know, nearly a quarter million total views on the Cocodona live stream. A vast majority of those people will never run an Aeroviper race, but hopefully yeah. they go run a local race or hopefully they, you know, move up from doing road 5Ks to road 10Ks or maybe they want to PR at the 5K or whatever it is. You know, we do, like the goal is to just inspire people to, to kind of redefine what's possible for them and kind of push their own boundaries to live, you know, a happy and healthy lifestyle. Do you see a connection, for example, with more registrations in air Viper races, like from the live stream production at Cocodona, can you point to like all of those streams that you put up and then a week later, somebody signing up for the race or somebody signing up for, you know, Flagstaff Sky Peaks or Havelina, something to that effect. Like, does it help drive registrations in that respect? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that we have like hard data to support it, but I think that we would say yes would be kind of like the the short answer. I think this year is probably the closest we have to tangible data in the sense that, you know, we opened registration during this year's race for Cocodona. And we saw a number of people who were, tuned into the stream in the live chat who signed up on site. And, you know, we can kind of track that straight back to, to their registration history. And so I think in past we haven't really known, but we've always thought like, you know, the race is growing year over year. Like I'll use black Canyon, for example, it's growing year over year. Some of that's because the sport's growing. Some of that's probably because the live stream, the live stream also impacts the greater sport. So there's like a lot of things to factor, but yeah. in addition, like all of our uh, engagement and social metrics are, you know, improving year over year as well. So I think that just like from a whole kind of content programming or suite of content offering between social and YouTube and, uh, all of those things. I think that those things are having a pretty significant impact on a lot of these events. Yeah. I was going to ask how long you like Aravipa would keep doing this while the ROI is relatively unclear, but it sounds like br- the brand marketing component of it is just as important as drawing a line between like a viewer of the live stream and a future participant at an Aravipa race. Is that kind of the the case? Yeah, I mean, I think that it would be both the brand marketing and the kind of growth of the sport, right? I think that those are probably the two things that are most prominent 
in terms of like the benefits that we can directly see is I think that these live streams help grow the sport and they help get the Aravipa brand in front of more people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also think that it ties into to kind of directly to registrations in a way, but I think that the brand marketing and marketing of the sport are the most important things. How about advertisers? Like, is this something that advertisers are very specifically interested in being a part of? Because I know that Aravipa has brand partners for events and whatnot, but like, has have there been people that have reached out specifically interested in uh, being a, a partner of the live stream? Yeah, I mean, not as much for Cocodona. Um, I don't know that we've like built out as many kind of we haven't really defined what that offering would look like, but the Bandera live coverage was supported inherently by, or like wholly by live stream sponsors that were mostly community-based organizations or companies. And we've done the same thing in the past with like Black Canyon and Havelina as well, where, you know, we've taken on some live stream specific sponsors who maybe aren't necessarily uh, brand partners for the event. And so I think that Cocodona would be a great opportunity for a lot of brands, especially now that, or a lot of, uh, a lot of like advertisers, especially now that we like, we really know the trajectory of the event, right? Like we know kind of where it is in terms of, in terms of the live media content, you know, like the views for Cocodona day one, stream one, are like 2000 views less than this year's black Canyon live stream. Yeah. And so it is, I would argue, you know, the pinnacle of, of uh, live production in the space in North America. And so I think there's just a lot of opportunities for advertisers now that we kind of, we know that, right. One thing I'm curious about. So earlier this year, Aravipa, you, you took your live stream production and you brought it to Bandera, a non Aravipa event. And by all accounts, it was a success. Um, we've seen Strava in the past sponsor the Broken Arrow live stream. I think Ultra Sign Up is sponsoring it now. I'm sure offering some personnel in the process. What are your? Do you have any thoughts on uh, natively produced live streams, like the events company itself producing and providing the staff for the experience, versus some outside or independent company porting their resources and personnel into the event like do you think that it's important to have one or the other or can both successfully uh, work in our sport yeah i mean i think that i think that both can coexist for sure i think that the most important thing is you know if you're interested in live streaming your event is you know partnering if you're going to part, partner with someone outside your organization that you're making sure that the story of the event that's being told is authentic to kind of your vision for the event, right? So if Broken Arrow is going to outsource their production, which they obviously are, like, I hope that every year they're ensuring that, you know, the production is telling kind of the Broken Arrow story in the way they see best, right? But I mean, it like not every company has, in fact, most events companies don't have the capacity to, to do live streaming in-house right like it's a big undertaking and you know a lot of events companies just don't have that staff or that bandwidth so i completely understand why they outsource it yeah 
But uh, just to touch on that, sorry. I've got more thoughts just rolling in Please, please, please. I do think that it's important, like when you are looking at an outside production agency, that they they understand the story, right? That they understand the sport and they understand the story so that, you know, you're not cutting to drone, like what, like uh, pretty drone shots instead of having a follow cam on the women's leader just because that shot is prettier, right? Like I think that that can be kind of a trap that you can fall into sometimes, right? Is sometimes it's easier to like show the prettiest shot and not necessarily show the shot that tells the best story. And the story is the most important thing. Where do you think this is all headed? I, I made a prediction on Twitter, um, kind of from the cheap seats, that in the same way everyone has a podcast in 2023, that everybody will have a live stream. And when I say everybody, I mean like events. Everyone will have a live stream five years from now in 2028. So that, that was my cheap seats peanut gallery prediction. But what do you think? Like knowing what you know about the fixed costs, the marginal costs, how, how much it, how much is involved in getting this, you know, done successfully? Like, does this look different five years from now, or is it still a few companies uh, making it happen, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I think there will be more races live streamed and more people producing live streams kind of on their own. I don't know that like every race will be live streamed because it, it is a, pretty big undertaking and i don't see that like changing within the next five years even as technology develops like you still have to like there's still a certain effort and certain uh financial cost that goes into it right but i think that you're going to see a lot more um a lot more races being broadcast i think you'll see i would expect that like most of what the what would be considered like the premier races on the ultra running calendar I would assume that all of those basically within the next three to five years are live streamed. Do you think that the current roadblocks or bottlenecks or technological challenges that we have in 2023 are going to be the exact same problems in 2028? Or do you think it's going to be new problems? Or do you think we're going to have a lot of this stuff solved and it's going to be like a really seamless uh, consumer experience? I think that we'll probably have a lot of the tech side solved Maybe not all. I would, and then I would expect like new challenges to arise, probably. Um, but I think that you're not going to be able to solve things like permitting issues, right? Like where you can and can't film, where you can and can't fly drones. And then I think the biggest challenge will just be bandwidth, right? Like, you know, who's going to either pay someone to produce the live stream or take that on it themselves? And I think that's where that's maybe where the bottleneck will will kind of remain. When you think about what Aravipa is doing really well right now in the live stream area, like what part of this whole product do you feel like you really have nailed and to the extent that you can start to focus on other problems, like what, what parts of this have become the core competency for Aravipa? Like it could be drone operators, it could be uh, the producing side, like what immediately comes to mind? <sighs> Yeah, I mean that's a great question. I, I feel like I never feel like we um, that we have it like dialed or solved per se. I think that things that we've got like a pretty good process in place for are things like our planning process. I feel like it's 
fairly robust in terms of like building out a run of show, laying out where all our camera operators are going to be at various times, building out our commentary plan, things like that, I think are really dialed. I think we, we've worked with a lot more drone pilots of late that has just opened us up to, you know, maybe having a larger network of drone operators. We've built relationships with people like Game On Live Studio who have helped produce or helped uh, film and capture some of our live streams. So I think that those aspects like our more professional end um, video stuff, I think we have pretty dialed in terms of like having drone pilots, having uh, professional filmers that we can rely on or a network of them. Um, and then again, I think that our planning process is is really dialed in. And I think that that's probably one of the things that helps us produce such great live streams is we just, we put a lot of work into it on the front end of like laying things out, seeing where gaps in coverage may be um, and kind of developing ac action plans to help alleviate any of those, uh, any, any problems that may occur there. Where are you getting your inspiration right now? Like when you look at other sports media out there, you look at other live streams, you look at TV product, and it could be from any sport. Who are you getting inspiration from and why? Yeah, I mean, I think for live content, specifically like live broadcasts, I think I still look back at, you know, Monday Night Football's Manning cast and college football's thing they do with Pat McAfee. And yeah. like that to me is like we're not replicating what they do, but it's a huge inspiration in terms of like more casual. Uh, the NBA also has done like players uh, commentary broadcast stuff like that. So like those kinds of things help me really believe that what we're doing can work, you know, in terms of like a more engagement style broadcast that is still premium. I think from like a whole content offering and like this, something we've talked about off the air, and I know that you get a lot of inspiration here as well as like the team at Sidious Mag um, is like yeah. a huge inspiration for kind of more our general content suite surrounding races because I think they do out of anyone in the greater running sport, they do the best job at like modern content and coverage around races. I so I guess this was the night after the broadcast ended this past Saturday, we went over to a buddy's house in Flagstaff and we watched the sound running track fest sponsored by on. And they had a couple cameras on the track there. And this was like 800, 1500, 5k, 10k events. And there was a couple broadcasters in the booth, but it honestly, it's, it seemed like, uh, a notch or two below the level of like the production of the Western States live stream and stuff that Aravipa has done. And it made me wonder, like, in your opinion, where do you think tr the trail running media live stream operations stack up when you look at our productions versus what's being done in track and field and road? Like, do you think we're at the same level as them? Do you think we're still trailing? Do you think we're ahead? How do you think about all that right now? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's so different that it's hard to like truly compare. Right. I think there's things that we do better than the road and track space. 
But then I think there's things that like they do really, really well. And some of that just comes down to they're not in the middle of the mountains, right? Like it's a lot. What do we do better? What do we do better? Do you think? I think that, I think that at least looking at the, from an Aravipa standpoint, I think the way that we weave in storytelling for the most part is better than the way they do it in the road space specifically. So I look at one that comes to mind this last year, Chicago marathon, like cutting to cutting to a community spotlight, which is inherently very important and should be done right at like a key mile marker. That's probably something that could maybe just be better planned out. And is something that like you could balance the community aspect of the storytelling with the race aspect of the storytelling a little bit better. And I think that we don't do it perfectly, but I think that we do a, a fairly good job at, at that. Um, I think that, you know, we also have advantages, right? Like we can put a drone up in the sky and uh, create like awe-inspiring views that you can't get when you're, you know, in New York City uh, or something like that, right? And so I think that we have inherent advantages there, but then they can put cameras on motorcycles and follow people for 26 miles, you know, like (laughs) it's pretty awesome. Switching gears just a little bit, I so we just had the Palettis from UTMB on the podcast because in a, in a prior month we had um, uh, Caleb Efta from the High Loans and 100 on, and there was just sort of like a back and forth there about the direction of the sport from an event management standpoint and race series standpoint. And we're actually having Doug Mayer on tomorrow, and Doug wrote this book that's coming out next month about the story of UTMB and the pros and the cons and the criticism and the praise, all that kind of stuff. Anyways, it makes me want to ask you and, and Jamil too, in all of this like wildness around the change of the sport and, and UTMB's influence, how do you guys think about that as one of the biggest, if not like the biggest trail running events company in the United States, do you feel like those market forces, do you feel the UTMB influence? Does it, does it inspire you? Does it bother you? Like, how do you guys think about all that right now? Yeah, <clears throat> that's a that's a good question. Um, I don't know that it it doesn't bother us per se. I think that it's too early, and this is my opinion, not necessarily Jamil's opinion or anything yeah. else like that. I think that it's too early to really understand, you know, what what impact is it's going to have long term, both positive or negative, right? But I think that there's there's a lot of ways for it to be positive. You know, I think that when you join, um, when you, when you join powers of that size, right. That there's a lot of room to do like really good things in the sport. And I know that there's maybe a lot of skepticism as to whether that will happen or whether it won't happen. Like time will tell on that. But I think that we in certain ways draw inspiration from UTMB uh, especially on like the media content side of things. But then in a lot of ways, we, we aren't trying to be the next UTMB, right? Like we're trying to be the best version of Aravipa that we can be. And that for us involves like, you know, a lot of community focus, a lot of storytelling, a lot of media focus, and a lot of just trying to inspire people to get outside and, uh, you know, explore, explore nature and improve their lives through the power of trail running, you know? 
one of my favorite ESPN shows is Around the Horn. Tony Reale, Woody Page, you know, all those guys back in the day, mid 2000s, great content. They have the buy or sell segment. Do you buy or sell this fear of pending monopolization where UTMB is going to build this World Series or going to build this network of races? In the process, it's going to crowd out and uh, no longer make it profitable for anybody that's not affiliated to have races. Uh, I'm going to, I would sell that 100%. I don't, again, I don't know that we have, and I'm not saying that UTMB and their like growing market share of the sport won't be like a net negative per se, but I'm also, I, I'm saying we don't know. And I, I don't see a space that we live in where UTMB ultimately becomes like, so powerful in in the sport that other entities can't continue to operate right like i think there are just there are too many really good small community focused races and event organizations that i just don't see how like how on earth is UTMB going to get Jason Green of Yeti run, Yeti Trail Runners to stop putting <laughs> on like epic events in the southeast, right? Like right. I just I don't I and maybe that's just maybe that's just me. Um but I just don't see a world where that happens because to this point I don't think UTMB has had like they're they're taking over these events in certain areas, right? But as of right now they haven't established like communities in those areas, right? Like those communities are still established. They just maybe do UTMB races each year now. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe that, I think that that's why I'm selling. I just don't, yeah, I don't think that these local communities and these regional communities are like going to just get kind of uh, taken over or anything like that. Right. Like I am most definitely selling too. I, I, I guess more, I asked the question because it's. Uh, I'm amazed at how pervasive the narrative is, and I and I I sell it because I think it implies that r- runners are being seen as victims and not capable of independent decision making. And I think especially in America, and I think um, Bob Crowley, who was the former president of ITRA, characterized American ultra runners as a bunch of wild mustangs that could never be tamed, no matter how hard anybody else across the world tries. And I I think I buy that. And so I just, I don't see how the forces would come together um, for that to be the case. I I think there's going to be plenty of coexistence across the board. Yeah. And I I also, (coughs) excuse me. I also don't think that, or I don't know that that's like UTMB's end goal per se, right? Like I'm not saying that it, yeah, I don't know either way, but I don't know that they're like coming into North America and putting on races with the expectation of like, oh, one day we're going to be, you know, basically the sole operator here. I think that they're just like looking at how they can grow their brand across a variety of different continents um, while making it make, you know, financial sense for them and to make it make sense for kind of the greater UTMB community. So I don't know that they're like coming and putting on races in North America to like stage some hostile takeover. 
Yeah, I think I and I personally think if it's going to impact any type of runner on the scene, it's going to impact the pro runner that wants to make money and that wants to be on start lines with the best competition. I think that's where they're going to have the most influence in terms of um, funneling athletes at their discretion. Yeah, but because of their new way of, you know, people getting into UP, UTMB, that may, you know, allow for elites to run other races. Yeah. You know, like you've got a number of elites who aren't aren't on the UTMB start list right now who probably wish they were. And so, you know, what are they going to do midsummer now? I know. Yeah, I've, I've definitely been, uh, it's been interesting to see who has and who hasn't bought into the qualifying system so far. Like we've seen Jim Walmsley run Istria, Zach Miller run Tarawera, just to name a few. But there's also been a lot that haven't. And I think there's a vacuum there, not a vacuum, but there's just, um, there's an opportunity for other race series and whatnot to present themselves as an alternative, which is fun. I I love, I love market competition. I think, I think part of what makes us all great is, um, the chance for races to compete for runners. Yeah, for sure. All right. Last thing I want to talk about, this has been awesome. I really appreciate your time is just, marketing the sport of trail running. So having a pretty meta conversation about the sport. And I, I wanted to have this conversation because you've marketed like at three different levels of running, you've marketed brick and mortar stores. You've marketed a shoe brand Mizuna, who I would love to kind of see take off even further in the trail space and then Aravipa. And so I think based on that constellation, I mean, this is such a broad question, but just based on your experience, how you've been trained, what, you know, um, what's your playbook for going about the process of growing our sport? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a ton of room for growth in the sport, uh, from a marketing perspective. And I think that for a number of different reasons, I think that one thing our sport as a whole doesn't do a great job of when talking about races. So this goes for, you know, small race organizers to Western States to Aravipa at times to, you know, like everyone in between is, I don't think that we do a good enough job at storytelling and, and really like sinking our teeth into kind of the why behind all the events, right? Like Western States maybe doesn't have to do that because it's a 10 year process to get into the event. Right. So like, they're going to, they're never going to have to worry about whether they hit permit capacities or not. But I think they could you know, grow the Western States brand by telling more stories. Um, I think that Aravipa could grow the Aravipa brand by telling more stories. And I think that it's, you know, some of our more successful marketing campaigns come from when we really dig our teeth into telling, telling stories and, you know, giving people a reason as to why they should spend their money when gas costs four or $5 a gallon on, you know, these experiences, right. And like, to me, that's one of the things that I picked up, you know, more so during my days at Mizuno than my days at uh, at Brick and Mortar at Flea Feet Atlanta, was just how important storytelling is uh, for consumers, right? And so, like, when you're, you know, developing a marketing campaign for a shoe, right, we'll use the Mizuno Wave Rider you have to sit and think about who your end consumer is, 
you have to sit and think about how you want to tell this product story, whether it be the technological features, whether, whether it be the user experience, whether it be any of those things, right? I think that we could do a better job. And again, I want to emphasize this goes for Aravipa as well uh, at like telling those stories. And so, you know, Aravipa is fortunate enough to where a lot of our races traverse these like very historical um, terrains, right? And so we're able to tell a lot of unique stories that are rich in mining history, or we're able to look at um, entrance lists and tell stories behind some of the participants in the event. And I think that that's just the most important thing is doing more than just saying like, hey, register for this event, but like telling people why they should want to register for this event and the experience that you're going to create for them. Yeah, it's interesting. And I had always thought that this was kind of a, a cliche thing. Like when everyone's, when, whenever someone would say the answer is storytelling, I always thought it was like this, just this vague umbrella term that didn't have substance to it. But like, I actually saw this in practice at Cocodona, like you, and I'm not sure if it was you or Jamil or, or Bryce or someone on the marketing team, but you had this questionnaire for the athletes. And, you know, there was just a couple of questions like what inspired you to run this race? What's your background? How'd you get into running? What are you looking forward to? What are some fun facts about you? And then you sort of left it to, you know, Chris, myself, Brett, the rest of the team to piece it together. But that was such a pivotal part of the live stream was in downtimes. And there was a lot of downtime because it's a 250 mile race. Uh, we got to, we would see a bib number on the screen and then we would type in that bib number on the tracker. And then we would look up the person's name in the questionnaire and boom, you have just this rich, treasure trove of uh words and stories to relay to the audience and it made it made such a difference and so i like in that moment i actually saw like the practical application of this storytelling umbrella in a race setting and i think you guys did an excellent job with that yeah i mean again i think it's the most important part to just marketing in general um is storytelling right and again it can be through a variety of ways but it's it is the way that, you know, you make your brand and product relatable to in consumers, right? We used to say, we had a saying at Mizuno, like, humanize the brand, right? Like, you want retailers and in consumers to, like, connect with your brand on, like, a personal level. Um, and the best way to do that is through, is through storytelling, whether it be talking about the product or talking about the people uh, involved in the product. I think one of the other funny things for me, and this comes from the questionnaire, I feel like it's it's a pretty timeless thing for nobody to want to admit that they were influenced. Like no one ever says, like, oh, this athlete influenced my shoe purchase, or you know, this person didn't influence my event registration. But when we're going through the questionnaire and the reasons for Coca Dona, you know, signing up for Coca Dona, I would say half of them were from that Eric Sensman film from the previous year, which we'll link to in the show notes because it's excellent. Or it was like Jamil's uh, vlogs uh, over the past five to 10 years. And so I thought also it was just this great case study in how impactful content marketing is on our sport. Like the ROI might not be immediate, but there were at least 15 or 20 people in that questionnaire that signed up because of those videos, which I thought was wild. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy that someone saw a video of Eric Sensman just suffering for days on end and they're like, yeah, I want to do that, you know? Insane. <laughs> Insane. Um, 
couple more questions here. I, I, I do want to talk about the exact opposite of like the successes here and like what you think works. Like you have, again, been, you've been in many scenarios. What have been some strategies for growth that you've seen attempted or even recycled over the years that clearly don't pan out and that you would advocate to like see stop in our world? Does anything come to mind? Wow, that's a good one. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, I think there's a lot of things that like we at Aravipa have tried that haven't been successful. I think one is, you know, not focusing on like brand level marketing at all, right? So I think that because when you do, when you talk about the Aravipa brand, you're not necessarily talking about a specific product. Um, and so you don't really see immediate benefits, but I think that it's incredibly important. Um, the other thing I think just in the industry as a whole um, that I would love to see go away <laughs> is a fear of just like trying new things, right? Like sometimes you're going to try stuff and it's going to fail, right? And it's not going to be successful. Like we've tried marketing campaigns at uh, Aravipa that just like tanked that did nothing, didn't move the needle, but like you have to, I think, try new things relative to your brand. And I think that, you know, I think that there's a fear for a lot of people um, of kind of a, not being willing to like get outside their kind of comfort zone. So they, you know, maybe produce the same types of content surrounding races uh, year over year and they market their races the same way. Um, actually that brings me to probably my biggest, I, I just want to see, yeah, like anyone operating in the trail space, innovate what they're doing. And that's probably more so on like larger event companies and brands in the space. Like let's freshen up, let's freshen up the marketing campaigns. Let's continue to, to push the creative pen for lack of a better word, like, Let's uh let's do some like new storytelling instead of you know the same the same marketing concept or the same media concept for five years in a row. You know, let's let's freshen things up. Two two more quick hitter questions here. The first, um, not counting Aravipa, who who else who is the who is the most innovative company in the running or the outdoor space right now? And why, in your opinion, like, or maybe not the most, but who comes to mind? From like an event standpoint or from like a media, any, any, or... any subcategory, any subcategory in outdoor or running. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that the two that come to mind, I'll also exclude single track because, you know, obviously we, we have an admiration for what you guys do or we wouldn't keep calling, uh, you, Brett, and Leah back to come help produce live streams and things like that. But I think that what Dylan and the team at Free Trail are doing is really excellent in terms of like building a uh, like a a very diverse suite of content, right? Like you know they're doing podcasts that you know feature an all women's panel. They're doing content that focuses on short distance trail running. And they're doing, you know, everything in between. Um, and then the other one, I think, and this is more on a brand side, is Solomon. Like, I think that we've looked at 
the way Solomon does content for a while now and have a lot of admiration for, you know, the team there, whether it be their video production or social content. I think that they do just a, a really excellent job at, you know, producing premium content and telling really good stories in the sport. Who is the most underrated or underappreciated marketing operator in our sport? Like if, if you could get one person on a podcast to talk about all the topics that we discussed today and more besides yourself, who are some other just interesting people that like they'd be an amazing dinner conversation or having a drink at a bar with them or like catching them at a race. And they're just like a treasure trove of ideas and innovation that you think deserves a spotlight. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people in the, in the space that like have a good marketing background. I think that maybe one that comes to mind directly is, and this is someone who most people aren't going to know. So I'm going, I'm going deep here. Um, is Chris Hollis. He's, uh, he's on the marketing team at Hoka. And so he was, so he, he worked at Mizuno just before I got there was in sport marketing there. He then worked for Atlanta track club and was his main responsibility was pulling together a lot of the, the logistics and marketing things for the, uh, 2020 trials in Atlanta marathon trials. And now he works for Hoka and does a lot of their events. I'm not sure his exact title, um, but he's just been around the industry in a bunch of different capacities. He worked for Adidas um, back in the day on the marketing team as well. And I think that's how he's connected to Mike McManus at Hoka. Um, So I think that he would be, he would be excellent. Matt, this has been such an awesome conversation, covered a lot of great ground. Appreciate your time. I would say one of the great gifts of, 2023 for me was the chance to meet you get to know you work with you on a semi-regular basis so thank you for that um we'll make sure to link to all of your social media and contacts and aravipa in the show notes any any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with before we go yeah i think that to to steal a catchphrase from the team at sidious mag i love trail running Thanks for listening. Before we sign off, if you are a fan of the show, please consider supporting us with a rating and a review in your podcast player, a donation on Patreon, or the use of our sponsored discount codes in the show notes. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and you have been listening to the Single Track Podcast.